We've been exploring um, the book of Mark for some time now, but today I have for you a summer special offer. These passages are generally dealt with separately, but today I'm giving you a treat. Not just because I'm about to go on holiday, but it's a wonderful deal. I want you to hear the message. Two for the price of one. Right, here we go. As with all offers, though, you have to look at the small print. You have to look and see what's there. What are you actually getting? Neither of these readings are really about what they seem to be at the first glance. The words of Jesus do not instruct us in our dealings with HM revenue and customs. And nor is the second half of the deal particularly about marriage or remarriage. The challenges to Jesus come hot on the heels of where we've been recently. The passage we had on Wednesday worship this week where I highlighted that it was set in the temple courtyard in the middle of Holy Week. And the people who are in authority are starting to come to him directly and pose awkward questions, trying to catch him out, trying to expose Jesus. He is being scrutinised, and the range of people doing so is spreading to each person of office. Because he has challenged all of them in where their position is. This time, the Pharisees and Herodians come to him, seemingly together. And they make slightly unusual bedfellows. The Pharisees opposed the Roman rule. The Herodians brought the Roman rule into effect through Herod, whom they followed. So if Jesus gave a simple yes answer or no answer, it would be kind of siding one way or the other with the mixed group that's come before him. One way it's a lose, the other way it's a lose because of how the other group will respond. It's impossible to keep all the people happy all the time. And here the group that's come are not happy to begin with. And they challenge him because they are not happy. But for him, for Jesus, to directly challenge either group would have consequences. In our NIV Bibles and in most English translations, the question that is asked is about whether to pay tax to the emperor, to Caesar, to the person whose head appears on the coins of his empire. But although that is implied by the question, the actual words, if you were to turn to the Greek, 
would say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? To give tribute? That's quite a different question. Give suggests a freedom that pay does not. And tribute suggests that it may involve more than money, but honouring the emperor in other ways too. Perhaps bending the knee before him, saying that he is your only king, your only ruler. If Jesus says, give a tribute, pay the tax, the Pharisees would easily see him as a collaborator. If, however, Jesus says, don't pay a tribute, he is causing insurrection and give grounds for the people of Herod to seek his arrest. But why have they come together? Why come together two such different groups? And it's not a case of them asking Jesus about their tax return or who you want to be associated with. This is a case of the Herodians and the Pharisees saying to each other, my enemy's enemy is my friend. They cooperate with each other to see if it will undermine Jesus because he threatens their status quo. He threatens both of these groups' place in power. But Jesus is a man of peace, of hope, and of seeking a new way forward. And his answer using the coin threatens neither, but is open to the hearer's interpretation. It relies on what is on the individual's heart. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If you believe that is what you should be given Caesar, give it to him. But then there's the challenge. And give to God what really belongs to God. What belongs to God but everything. Everything in all creation comes from the Lord our God. And so... There is the spin. Are you going to give to the false God? Or are you going to give to the real God? Are you going to give to Caesar? Are you going to give to the Creator who is worthy to receive? The two groups, of course, marveled at Jesus. And that was right to do. We need to marvel. And in so doing, ask ourselves whether we truly do give to God what it is right for God to receive. Is our worship limited to our singing and our music? Do we give our worshipful hands that they may be of service? Do we give sacrificially of our time? And, of course, 
on a reading involving a coin. Uh, what appropriate financial gifts do we give that recognize Jesus is the Lord of our life, the one that has command of all? What do we give to the Father and Creator of all things? What do we give to the Spirit? What do we give to the one God that we should rightly bow down and worship? And as we ponder that, as we ponder how we live in this life and what we do with who we are and what we have in our possession, our thoughts might move on to the new life that we have in Jesus. And that takes us into the second half of the passage. And yet another group being introduced, asking another tricky question. Another group trying to challenge him, trying to catch Jesus out. It sounds as if it's some sort of riddle along the lines of, as I was going to St Ives, I met a man with seven wives, only it's kind of the other way around. It's one wife with seven husbands in this case. Seven husbands and no children. Who at the resurrection will she be married to? And again, we need to think of what the actual question is and who is asking it. And the Sadducees are people, we are told in verse 18, that don't believe in the resurrection, but yet here they are asking a question about resurrection. The outcome they were hoping for was perhaps not going to be as brutal as the question about Caesar, but which they might be able to mock the idea of a resurrection. And in so doing, mock Jesus, who had been speaking of new life. They want to mock Jesus because of the events earlier in the week. These are the folk that were responsible for the money changing that had been going on when tables were turned over. And we might remember whose face was on some of those coins. The basis of being being an aristocratic Sadducee was the obedience to the Mosaic law. The law that's seen in the first five books uh, of our, our Bibles, the, as seen in the Torah, but it didn't involve the oral law that had uh, come into being later. The, the oral law that was accepted by the Pharisees. And they point to the understanding of the part of the law that they do accept in their question. They give reference to Moses. And saying... Moses 
gave teaching on how to look after a widow who had no child. A widow with no source of income. The the marriage that they suggest in their riddle happens seven times. Suggests a completeness of this poor woman's poverty. It's not simply that she didn't get a child from her first husband. It happens to her again and again and again that there is nothing there to support her. There is no wealth. Where would her aid come from? The answer to where the aid would come from would be from the faithful people of course but for this woman there is no hope and there is no one to inherit the family name even and as they don't believe in the the next life the widow's death simply spells the end that's it the end of a story that family ceases to be But of course in Jesus there is hope and there is life. Not a life like we have known on this earth. The whole church will be the bride and Christ himself the groom. Our heavenly priorities are rightly different from the earthly ones. Our understandings of marriage and relationship beyond the grave is challenged and that is sometimes painful for us to think about. We might think back to the Caesar coin issue. Your priorities will not be with the living man, but with the living God. That does not mean necessarily that we will not be able to recognise the ones we have loved when we see them in the next life. But it does mean our focus, our attention will be elsewhere on our worship of the Lord. As Jesus tries to explain this, he he does not stop at simply saying they don't understand marriage. The question of husband. He has to give these people more teaching They don't believe in resurrection. So they need to hear of new life in the scriptures that they trust. And as we talk with people that might not understand their faith or uh, are not of faith, we need to start from where people are, speaking in terms that they understand, in terms of maybe scriptures or teachings that they will have heard of and have taken maybe as partly as a rule of their life. And then we develop that further. So Jesus does that. He turns to Exodus, where there is the account of a voice speaking to Moses from the burning bush that is not consumed. And the voice reveals himself. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It's been 400 years 
since the time of Jacob. Since Jacob had followed his son Joseph to Egypt, when things were good in that land, but now they need to be led out of. 400 years since Jacob had died. And longer since his father and grandfather had died. But yet their names are not given as past tense. They have not ceased to exist. It's not I was the God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob, that the Lord says. He is the God of the living. So Jesus scolds the Sadducees for not knowing the scripture that they claim to know. We in the church have to be sure that if we claim that we know something, we actually know something of it. If we're trying to follow the Bible, that we read the Bible and try to come to understand what it is saying. He's able to challenge them and say their understanding of Scripture is wrong. That the resurrection is right. The special offer today is not simply two bits of Scripture conveniently next to each other where those in power are trying to trick Jesus. But together it forms a passage that challenges us about how we live as believers in this life, but also look to the next life. In this life, we can choose to give to God the things that are rightly God's, or we can give them to an earthly God, one that we make. In the next life, our focus will be fully on being God's people. But we should not think of our time there in earthly ways. And nor does that mean that we should prepare for that time by living in earthly ways. But we put our priority on the Lord. The resurrection life will be different. It will be in a place that is free of sickness and death, but full of joy and delight. Our special offer is put before us. An offer that we can choose to accept and take as our own. That we can see Christ as our King. Or, as we sometimes do in the supermarket, say that even at that special deal that is there, it's too pricely. And we walk on past. The problem, however, is you can't buy just one of them. 
Sometimes I do that. I'll look at the thing and I say, I don't really want to buy 24 tins of baked beans. Now, that wouldn't be quite the right thing, would it? But I don't really want to buy two bottles of Schlur. That's what I, I, I saw somebody the other day from the church wandering into the Schlur aisle in the supermarket. We do that, don't we? Say, um, I don't want two bottles of Schlur. Eat. I only want one just now, even though it's on discount, even though it's on offer, that I can get two for a cheaper price. I only want the one. I'm only paying for the one. We can't do that. with the teaching that's in the gospel. We can't say, oh, well, I'll choose to have the afterlife that's wonderful, but not live the life that is promised now. The two come together. So live the life that God makes new for you now. Live his way. Give to God what is God's. And then continue giving to God what is God's as you experience new life. Amen.